Welcome to the Beaver Legends series with Tim Barnum. Welcome to the Beaver Legends podcast. In this series, we'll be speaking to some of the clinicians whose careers have changed the equine veterinary world through a combination of clinical excellence, teaching and research. We hope to find out how they manage this and what has made them the way they are, as well as finding out what they get up to away from work. In this episode, I caught up with Professor Paddy Dixon in early April 2021, only a few months after he retired from the University of Edinburgh after 45 years of service. Paddy is best known for his work in the fields of dentistry and upper airway surgery, which as we find out in this episode extended to recurrent laryngeal neuropathy in the dog as well. We also get a few more surprises along the way. So thank you, Paddy, for agreeing to do the first of the Beaver Legends podcast this evening. And my first question to you is, how does a boy from Kilkenny decide he wants to be a vet? And more importantly, decide he wants to be an equine vet? Well, a lot of it is just serendipity. Um, I was born uh, in Tipperary and we moved to Kilkenny when I was quite young. And we moved to work, live on a big farm. And we lived in one half of a a big farmhouse and the farmer lived in the other half, the massive house that was at one stage of 16 children, four adults, three maids, and about five or six workmen in this big house. But so I got interested in farming there. It was a mixed farm, you know, that had pigs and chickens and calves and sheep, all sorts of uh, tillage and, you know, fattened beef. So uh, I was quite interested in agriculture. Uh, and we used to help out on the farm, just getting in the poor farmer's way most of the time. Um, there wasn't much horse involvement. We were sent for riding lessons some summers, and there was one workhorse on the farm that eventually was replaced by another tractor, but nothing major equine. Uh, and then we moved, when I was a teenager, we moved to Kilkenny City. It's actually, even as only 10,000 people then, it's got a cathedral, so we can call it a city. Uh, and in secondary school, uh, I didn't do very well. I wasn't very motivated. And uh, I went to a school run by a religious order called the Christian Brothers. And some of them are the most unchristian people you could imagine. You know, they're just fond of belting you. Uh, and in my stream, uh, we had to do everything through Gaelic. So I'd learn Latin through Gaelic, you know, it was a bit of a struggle. So uh, in the last couple of years, I just got kind of fed up with it. And I did very, very little. Uh, and not surprisingly, when we did our equivalent of the A-levels, I did really badly. Um, I just got a, a couple of passes and one second-class honour. So I was expected to go to university, but I didn't have anything like the grades to get there. And also, to go to university in Ireland at that stage, you had to have Latin or a modern language. And in about fourth year, one of my friends discovered that if you said you were doing night lessons uh, in an, a foreign language, so we took up uh, Spanish lessons at night time. We didn't do anything, but we got out of the Latin classes. So we got a good few free periods during the week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we had French there and we had a very nice lady French teacher who's actually, whose husband was a civil engineer who worked with my dad. Both of them were uh, county engineers in the local authority, uh, but I did nothing there either. So uh, in the French uh, part of my final exam, I, I think I got 4%. And, and, uh, That's quite an achievement. Yeah. <laughs> but the um, 
Mrs. Dunn's husband told my father that if I'd even ruled the paper straight, uh, I would have got more marks. <laughs> I, I think in my Spanish night class, I did better. I think I got about 6%. Uh, but um, even though I had done no work, I felt really aggrieved at both of these because I thought I could get lumps of text that I could um, try and translate, pick out a few words. But the French paper was totally in French, so I couldn't read the bloody thing. <laughs> and likewise, the Spanish paper was in Spanish, so I didn't know what were the questions of what was to be translated. So, yeah. So I was in a bit of a quandary then because um, I didn't have a language and I had really poor grades. So uh, my parents suggested I should do uh, an agricultural uh, diploma for a year. So I went up to County Cavan uh, and I, I did, a, it was just basically where farmers would go after they left school and just try and get some kind of scientific training before they went back to run on the farm. And that basically was it. There was one other person who had intended to go to university, but I kind of grew up there and even remember the first day I was there, uh, we were taught biology. We never did biology in the school I was in. I was, he was talking about cells and I, I was just looking at the desk and realized, you know, wood is actually made of cells. I just never kind of bothered before. I just thought everything was made of plastic or something or other. But I did, I did quite well there. And I repeated a few of the subjects on my own, including Latin. And, um, <laughs> and caught up with you in the end. Caught up with me in the end. I just basically memorized large sections of it. I had a good memory at that stage. I can't remember anything now. Uh, and in fact, I got the grades and to go to university and I had my uh, Latin or modern language. Uh, but it was a bit late that year then to get to college. So I had a year to spare and I worked as a technician in the brewery, uh, just basically very, very simple stuff, just measuring the specific gravities and checking out the yeast and a bit of bacteriology. And um, it's quite interesting. Uh, we used to have tasting panels on a Friday. Uh, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't um, just to basically work out how the kegs were, kegs were going off, like shelf life and trying to brew. So uh, you'd get about a quarter pint in each it wasn't like wine tasting. You didn't spit them out. You drank them all. And uh, I must say, we had a lot of unofficial uh, beer tastings as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the Not year... Not just Friday night. Yeah, <laughs> no, Friday night, yeah. But um, so I applied to um, go to University College Dublin. They applied to do agricultural science. and I was admitted because of my grades. And about three weeks before I went, I was just having a chat with my father and he was a really mild-mannered, kind man. He didn't drink or smoke, very religious. And he had seven sons, and we were the bane of the town. We wrecked the town. You know, he, we were <laughs> troublemakers. You know, like, I remember one night he was looking out the drawing room window, and he thought he saw his car rolling down the road uh, with no driver in it. it was one of my younger brothers freewheeling down the road and then driving off. But uh, he, he was a very kind and wise person, and he was really tolerant on his, his wild sons. But he... he he said to me, you're looking forward to go to university? I said, I am actually. And he said, um, what do you think you like about the course? I said, I'm really looking forward to the animals and learning about animals. Uh, and he said, um, how about the crops? I said, I'm not really bothered about that. And he said, you should be doing veterinary. So the next day I just wrote to the university, said I'm switching from agriculture to veterinary. And I got a letter back within a week. I said, that's fine. <laughs> but <laughs> it was different days. But um. They took in the large number into first year. It was a massive class. It was a pre, like physics, chemistry, that. And they took in all the medics and all of the biological sciences. And on the uh, 50 out of, uh, only the top 50 went through to veterinary. And they managed to get in there. And the other, I think 100 got into medicine. And the other people did, you know, some of them actually wanted to do bacteriology or other stuff like that. 
so it went to Vet College. And this was UCD? University College Dublin, yeah. It was really strange. We had 50. And there was a, another Vet College in the same grounds with 12 at Trinity. And they had a professor of anatomy and a professor of pathology. And, you know, we used to share the same things. It was absolutely ridiculous, kind of a political thing. But uh, they were joined up just shortly after I left. Uh, and I did really reasonably well in, in Vet College. I really enjoyed it and, you know, made great friends. And, you know, we had very, very good fun there. Uh, and in fact, it was f- from there, we did a couple of rugby trips to Edinburgh, and I really remember liking Edinburgh. You know, we just came over on the bus and we went over there and we, we had a great time, you know, playing there. And I just liked the city and I liked the people. And I just remember once, I think I was in third year, and we're staying on this um, student flat, I think I was sleeping on, on a sleeping bag on the ground. And um, we'd been out on the Friday night and the Saturday night, and I wasn't feeling really well on a Sunday. And this big fine leader really said to me, he said, come on, he said, we're going for a drink. And I said, oh, I can't. I said, I'm not well. He said, of course you're fine. That's coming in. And he kind of dragged me out of the sleeping bag. And the pubs used to close in Edinburgh on a Sunday. So I thought I'd be safe. But no, the, the hotels used to open. So he dragged me down Newington. And I said, I'm not really well. And we're passing by this house. And he just snatched a pint of milk off, <laughs> off the curb. <laughs> and he forced it on my neck. And <laughs> he, he said, no, son, you'll be fine. But... <laughs> yeah, so I had warm memories of, of Edinburgh. Yeah, so when I finished, um, I had seen some practice in America up in um, New England, uh, in Rhode Island in particular, and I really liked it up there. And I thought maybe I would go back there uh, after maybe a year or so. It was nice, seemed to be a nice lifestyle. Uh, but I thought um, I saw an ad in the vet record uh, for a year in large animal medicine. So it's basically bovine and equine. Medicine is probably the equivalent of an intern, and I decided to apply for that. And and that was at Edinburgh. That was at Edinburgh, yeah. And meanwhile, I was working. So that was your first job. Your first job was at Edinburgh. Yeah. Well, uh, I had I was working for about four months in a, a large animal practice in Kilkenny, and later on, be a very long holiday. So I actually went back there for probably a total of about a year. I used to go back there in the summer. We used to get like um universities in those days used to get virtually closed down in July not open until October. Yeah, there was not much going on in the summer at that stage. Uh, but about another couple of weeks before I went, I think about a month before I went, I got a letter from the uh, head of medicine. And he suggested, um, no, he actually told me, he said, um, a small animal dermatologist has had a heart attack uh, and um, you'll actually be going small animal dermatology rather than a large animal. Um, so different days. So I said, I'll be fine. And I went there and after about a month, the small animal chap recovered and he came back and he was really good. He showed me about blood work and you know, I don't think I ever wanted to do dermatology that, but he was good methodical. Mm. We did a lot of lab work and, you know, I enjoyed it. So your Edinburgh career was started as a small animal <laughs> dermatologist. Well, he did some gar- uh, gastroenterology as well, but there's no endoscopes and most of the gastroenterology was by um, giving them bariums. And, you know, bringing them up and down to x-ray. So some of them could take like six hours up every half an hour. And, you know, wearing a lead gown, it was down in the basement. I didn't really enjoy it, but the people I worked with were very, very good. And then at the end of that year, then, uh, Mr. McPherson, he was Ewan McPherson, um, Mr. Mac, as we used to call him. Uh, he said, well, you've done that year. Do you want to come and do a year in large? And I just started there. And he said to me after about a week, he said, would you like to do a PhD? And he was getting quite on at this stage in his 60s. And the same month or two, he took on Andy Matthews, Jill Thompson, 
and Susan Maxwell. He took on three PhDs and an MPhil when he was in his late 60s. But he was a wonderful person and he he knew what projects would work. He knew what was doable and he knew what was interesting and he could always get the funding. So we worked with him for uh, about three three years, myself and Andy and Jill. And what they do, we helped down the yard at the time. And it was a very academic and a very, very kind of open kind of environment, very educational. And, you know, even in that three years, remember once myself and Andy were looking at a calf that was anemic and we couldn't work it out. And then Max suggested it could be autoimmune. And he gave us the facilities to go and get some tests done on the blood. And in fact, myself and Andy discovered autoimmune hemolytic anemia in the bovines. And uh, another time I was helping him out on a trotting horse that was trotting very badly. And we used to take arterial oxygen samples from the wall. Mac was one of the first in Britain to do that. And the blood in this thing was brown. Normally when you take an arterial sample, it comes out flushing and bright red. This came out brown. And we sent it up to the lab and said the horse has been poisoned with nitrate. It's got methemoglobinemia. And you give it methylene blue. And we gave it methylene blue and it got perfect ordinary blood. And then over the following couple of days, the blood went brown again. And Mr. Max suggested that, um, you know, there were some human, you know, uh, developmental disorders, you know, genetic disorders that had this and put me in touch with a lab. And it turned out to be um, a very rare, it was the first time it was described, you know, as a glutathione reductase. And then even further than he encouraged me to trace up some of the siblings and the other ones. And he arranged and he paid for vets to collect bloods and get them frozen or sorry, on ice and flown up and turned out the family were involved. So it was a very um, academic and, you know, instructive environment. I really admire Mr. Mack, but he was, um, he was a very funny person. He used to wear a big baggy three-piece uh, tweed suit, like just like, like a sack. And the turnips on the trousers, he used them as an ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking while working. Yeah, he he had a permanent days. cigarette in his mouth. And um, he used to speak without moving his lips. And he often had a gnash about an inch and a half long, and he was telling you something important. And you're just looking at this ash and just saying, how the bloody hell is that ash not falling? But, yeah, but he, he, he was um, a wonderful instructor. And he never, as long as the jobs were being done, and you know, we all got our PhDs and got papers done. So that was fine. Because your original passion was was medicine, wasn't it? Really? Well, that was med. Yeah. Well, I did medicine, but I got interested in respiratory upper airway at the time. And then, just by serendipity, at the end of the three years, jobs came up in in large animal surgery, and they didn't come up very often. They came up once every ten years, and I switched over to surgery. But I kept on doing the medicine. I kept on doing the pulmonary medicine after Mac retired, and then later on, Bruce McGorman those took over. But I, I got interested in the upper airways, and there wasn't many people at the time doing it. There was Bob Cook, and later on, Tim Greet did some, Gordon Baker in Glasgow, and Jeff. Uh, and then we got a new professor, it was a Jimmy Campbell from Glasgow, and he was very encouraging, and he thought, you know, that this is some, an area that should be developed. And he also got me to do, there's nobody in the small animals very interested. So he got me for about 10 years, I did a small animal upper airway. Uh, and, um, you know, quite educational as well, you know, the bilateral laryngeal paralysis and the dogs and, you know, the brachycephalic stuff and tumors and aspergillus and the younger dolichocephalics. So that was quite instructive. And for somehow he also got me doing the chest surgery, and I wasn't a great surgeon. 
there was no ACVS or ECVS. You just kind of learnt on the job and just basically ductus arteriosus of a patient or transposition of the aortic arch and that, that type of stuff. But um, so that's how I got into surgery through a lot of kind of side routes. Uh, but I was always interested in respiratory. Uh, so I basically kept at that and I'm still very interested in respiratory. Yeah. And you supervised Bruce McGorham early on in his career, didn't you? I did, yeah. I, his research and his, his, <clears throat> his early stuff. Yeah, and Kirsty Pickles and um, Scott yeah. Peary and well. yeah, Neve Collins who moved down to Scones. Yeah, so some of them, some of the students were more into the, they were basically respiratory residencies. Most of them were funded by the HBLB and some people had more of a medicine bent other people more like, um, you know, Justin Perkins and Safia and uh, David Railton before that, who went down to school and, um, you know, yourself and John O'Leary, uh, Neil, you know, obviously Henry, uh, other people were more into the surgery and later on kind of got into the dentistry. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, obviously then there was a natural evolution into the dentistry as well from that. So how did, how did that come about, Paddy? Yeah. Well, you know, the very few people doing dentistry. Jeff did a bit on fractured teeth, and Gordon Baker had done a bit as well. But basically, it was a dearth. There was really no research, uh, and I got interested basically from sinusitis, you know, dental sinusitis, and it's just, everything to do with teeth are a bit of a mystery. And even we used to get into the, you know, the mandibular abscesses. You know, somebody had to done about him, but otherwise, a lot of dentistry was neglected. Uh, and in fact, uh, it was actually Peter Rostley kind of pushed me for a while. That, he wanted. He recognised that Peter, with his usual foresight, recognised that there was nothing academic being done there. So he he got me to try and persuade a bunch of people to write some papers. So we had a, I think it's back in 1983. No, sorry, 1993. The decades fly. It's not even years. Old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we managed to get one together, and you know, um, actually Barry Edwards did some on some of the retained teeth, and John Wormsley did his one from practice for the show that um you know dental aging was totally wrong and you know we had some radiology stuff and that so that really got me going and you know later on um i had a very good turkish phd student servit kilic and he with sue kempson and electron microscope actually worked out the different types of enamel and teeth and equine teeth and you know the dentin and the cementum and the you know should infundibular caries uh, yeah so that was quite interesting. And at that stage, there was an interest by Beaver in dentistry. And by that stage, you know, there was a lot of these lay dental organizations pushing in and taking over and a lot of mumbo jumbo. And, you know, with Beaver, then we brought over Jack Easley and Leon Scrutchfield. And we got them initially to start running courses. We used to run them in sometimes three or four when they came over. We do a Dublin, London, Liverpool, Edinburgh, really quite long tours. And I think we did about 30. Um, organizations, sorry, runs of these, um, sorry, 30 different colleges. And that kind of brought up the standard. And later on, then, you know, we got other people, Ian Dacre, when he came for his PhD, uh, Ian did a really lot of work, you know, he showed a lot about apical infections, and he showed, um, you know, the idiopathic fractures. And later after that, then Nicole de Talk came, and I think she had 11 papers published by then. So Incredible. You mentioned a lot of people there that obviously uh, have done a lot of work under your uh, tutelage and guidance. Yeah. And, but who, and you mentioned Mac as well, but who would you 
consider as the legends that you have worked with or aspired to or the the hero characters in in the profession that you have worked with and looked up to over the years well initially particularly when i was doing the large animal stuff used to, john o'connor used to phone him on difficult cases and later on uh, barry edwards and you know barry was wonderful you know barry was the first to do colic surgery in britain huskamp started doing it back in the you know the late 70s and huskamp described you know these different displacements of the cecum and colon but barry was the first when he was down in london and later on then he went to liverpool you know barry really started all of that people didn't believe that you know you could actually do a midline laparotomy and they were done paramedian and done with interrupted stainless steel sutures you know if somebody said you're doing a continuous and you're going to put an absorbable in you know you, you you wouldn't have believed them so barry was very helpful to me as well so th- they were the main ones kind of surgically but from my own career, I would say Mr. McPherson was, was wonderful. He was really good. And Jimmy Campbell was very supportive to me as well. Just encouraged me, you know, that you can do the dogs, you know, near the end, you know, the, I learned a lot from them and I kind of regret that we didn't write some of it up. Myself and Colin Stead, he, he was an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. He used to examine some of these bilateral ones and he showed that in fact, that most of them had poor placing reflexes. And it's now recognized that in the dog is part of a, polyneuropathy you know and you know we've seen that yeah and we suggest cut out their vocal folds you know just get them down sometimes hard to diagnose because unlike the horse you can't compare one side with the other and then if they're a bit deep under anesthesia it could be the anesthesia that's making them paralyze and you know occasionally we got a web and uh, we used to get somebody an ent surgeon from the royal infirmary come over and he showed us some techniques and that that was good but um Colin said was quite interesting. I have terrible handwriting. I, I've, I'm, no need to tell you. <laughs> he, he, even when I was in kindergarten, my first year in school, uh, there used to be a competition for each class and they got a Parker pen in the winner. And I was the only one, I was only about five, and they just said, um, Podrick, you can't enter. I was the only one. Like a... <laughs> they wouldn't even let you compete. <laughs> enter, yeah. I imagined that to a child, but... Um, but oh, when I used to do these small animals, he used to have to leave, you know, instruction notes and that. I remember one day in my pigeonhole, Colin had typed out this card and he said, um, Paddy, uh, can you learn to write in English or can you teach me Chinese? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, oh, I think brilliant. it was even, yeah. So and part of the, I mean, I'm not a lab scientist, you know, if, if somebody saw me putting on a white coat and going to the laboratory that that locked the doors and found the white men. But, you know, I, I always try and keep good records of, of stuff. And um, sometimes with the resident, one or two, they just would maybe not as meticulous. They couldn't maybe see that in a couple of years' time they were doing. But I got this sign printed for our endoscopy room. And it was um, even the shortest written recorded message is better than the fondest memory. And um, I think it was Bruce McGorham or David what I put in the written record to put above it legible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that were fine. The other person that was really good to me was a, a static, well, Gordon Scott. And he was wonderful. He was in the college and he used to do statistics and basically help people, you know, construct papers. And he really helped me for about 20 years. And he was just a wonderful person. And he used to help everybody. Uh, Later on, when we start doing colics, initially we didn't do colics. In fact, we give a very poor night service. But back in the 90s, when we started, 
even if you're out here on a Sunday night at one in the morning, he'd be in there, you know, working on his students' work. And he used to bring over a lot of um, students from uh, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and they'd come and they'd just barely have an undergraduate degree and he'd get them up to scratch and then teach them English and give them PhDs and going back. And he did this like a conveyor belt for about 25 years. He, he was a wonderful person. He, he was a really inspiration and really helpful. He's one of the reasons I know that about statics, statistics. He did them all for me. And thankfully later on, we had um, Darren Shaw. And for the last seven or eight years, I've got Richard Reardon by my side. Otherwise I'd be totally lost and it's getting so complex now. Yeah, yeah I know how you feel. I know how you feel. Yeah. So are there any things in your career uh, obviously, you've just recently retired, that you would do differently? Not really. A lot of people <clears throat> have planned careers, you know, from from about 12 on, they're trying to get their grades and they're this one here and later on, you know, seeing all the practice and, you know, getting perfect CVs and getting instructions to go for interviews. Everything in my career has been just by chance or by haphazard. I don't really know. Um, I never actually planned to be an equine surgeon, but it was just by the chance of going to Edinburgh and working with Mr. Mack and then getting the surgery job. Um, with the ruminants, you know, they're interesting enough, but near the end, when anything became more than three or 400 quid, put it down. Whereas with horses, you could go on and do a bit more, but yeah, something like that. I suppose I should really have worked a bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> Secondary school, yeah. <laughs> It's really nothing else. I mean, some projects, it did turn out to be failures, but that's the part of projects, you know. Uh, yeah, that's so, the whole point. Yeah, something, yeah, some things do. Yeah, and even lately, you know, we've done a lot on molecular bacteriology. And, you know, even though they've been very, very successful, you know, it's actually very hard to work out what's going on. You know, you, you end up with a thousand and, you know, you've got the same bacteria and disease as the other ones and it's different proportions and... Uh, some of these, you know, you're hoping that you're going to get a magic bullet to just find a, like a new bacteria. For example, you know, we had a Gordon Lawson with one of the bacteria. Well, he was the bacteriologist in the vet college. And that was before um, the days of immunological bacteriology. Everything was just like fermenting sugars and stains and that. And he discovered, you know, Lawsonia intercellularis himself and Alan Rowlands, you know, just basically in a... Mm -hmm. A room with just kind of a few wash bottles and a few stains and a few sugars and incubators, like so. So, you be. I, I thought that you know with caries we might just get a magic bullet and get one of these, but no, yeah. So, Monday, you haven't finished with your research, really. Yeah, no, it's, it's still it's, yeah, on, we still no. have some things going. I have a couple more projects to finish off, and we have this new dentistry book that I've been on for about two and a half years. It's, as I said, it's like a millstone around my neck. We've got I'm um, trying to chivy forty authors and. Yeah, so uh. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> I'll leave it. Yeah. So just we'll we'll skip away from the veterinary world. That's quite an insight uh, you've given us there. So what are your passions away from work, Paddy? Obviously, I know you're a big family man, but uh, um, what, what do you like to get up to out well, of work? Yeah, I imagine sometimes I'm a golfer. You know, my my golf hasn't improved over the last twenty five years, but something goes right and then something goes wrong, and uh, yeah, so. I like doing that, you know, like hill walking and um, not, not mountaineering, but I like kind of stiff hill walks, uh, areas like that. And, you know, I still have an agricultural bent. I still, um, you know, grow vegetables and that, not too big on flowers or and fruit trees there. 
and we've got a number. So you eventually came back to the uh, the craft. <laughs> the craft yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the antiques as well? Yeah. Well, I started that as a hobby uh, when I was doing the PhD with Mac. Just <clears throat> a hobby, and I think it was again serendipity again that um, Ireland had, you know, until then it mainly exported food to Britain. And there was a cheap food policy and Ireland was competing with, you know, Canada and New Zealand and Australia. And, you know, the farmers were, you know, they worked hard and there's very, very little. The big farm that we lived on when we were young, the farmers there worked seven days a week the whole year round. And he maybe a couple of times a year he would go to a hurling match and they get up at four o'clock and we'd call the cows, go to Dublin and come back that night and re-milk them again. That would be their holiday. Uh, they really had no money, you know, and battered old cars. But once Ireland joined the EU, the, the farmers started getting, you know, decent prices. And Ireland became, you know, suddenly a bit flush. And a friend of my mother asked me, could I get some antiques uh, in Scotland sent over? And in fact, I did that. And near the end, there was a, a big demand for it. But one of my brothers who was working in the NHS in London, who didn't like it, uh, he came up and he took over the antiques and uh, he expanded and he, he runs it now. It's quite a big operation, and with some other brothers, we all kind of settle down. At the end, we we have some property businesses and chemical holdings and you know stuff like that. So we're pretty busy. There's always a problem or always something else. But you know, I have plenty of outside interests. Yeah, keeps you out of trouble. Keeps me out of trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, what three things? I'm asking this question to everybody is what three things have been the most important things in your career? And if you were starting your career again, you couldn't live without them. Well, I suppose, you know, getting good guidance. You know, my father was quite a wise man. And, you know, he tolerated all my tossing around. Somebody that, you know, has a bit of faith that realized eventually something's going to come right. And later on, I was very lucky with the just really lucky with the staff in Edinburgh that were so supportive, you know, from, you know, even the small animal dermatologist showed me blood works and how to interpret that and, you know, proper radiography. And Ewan McPherson was just amazing. Just like the, like the gifted, I mean, he was, he looked like a bumbling old man, but in fact, uh, at that stage, as well as doing your university exam, you had to do a Royal College exam. The MRCVS wasn't automatic if you, if you got your degree in some colleges. Uh, and the prize for the best person in Britain and Ireland was called the Fitzweigram winner. Mr. Mack was that. He was really bright and he was really good. And, you know, just setting you in ways that you would never think about rather there uh, and accurate records. And later on, there were some wonderful people that inspired us. Like Richard Halliwell helped us greatly with the lung disease because he was a small animal dermatologist, but he knew immunology. And later on, then Hugh Miller, he helped us, go, you know, we got a... Bruce, uh, we got big grants from the Welcome for, you know, for treadmills and that before overground endoscopy came. So I think most of the success or what success I've had has been by, you know, meeting these people who kind of um, opened the doors to you, gives you a chance to, you know, do stuff like that. Yeah. And also as well, you know, picking bright students and motivated students um, to kind of work with you, you know, and a lot of these will, you know, disagree with you and get on and sometimes do a really good job and most of the time do a brilliant job you know yeah. yeah um well there's one there's one so you can have that one as your number one right any other things that you'd take for your career well you've got to keep good records 
if, if you're going to be um, a clinical vet, I'm not a lab person. You, you've got to keep good, consistent records all along. And you know, later on, when you go back and you're busy that day, you didn't bother doing it, and you know, it ends up demotivating you. So good records all along. And you know, you've, you've got to bloody well work hard. <laughs> I've just realised <laughs> that a bit later. And yeah, my, my son's quite a successful um, business person. He's an Australian now, but he works for a UK company. And it was touching me about him. He just did a minimum in school, you know, got to university. He just kind of did a minimum and he had reasonable jobs. But he told me when he was about 35, he had a, a road to Damascus moment as well. He said, I realize he's actually, I'm not going to get anywhere unless I work really hard. <laughs> and he started, working, he started working really hard and he's been quite successful. So, you know, um, I think you, you've got to actually put a bit of effort into it as well. Yeah. Yeah, too right. What would you say in terms of um, equipment that you have used? I mean, you've obviously seen in the 45 years of working in the surgery and the dentistry, what pieces of equipment have changed your life? Well, the Uh, the endoscope, yeah. When I went to the bush first, we had a rigid, uh, you know, nasal scope. You know, so you put it up the horse's nose, and if it moved, you, so you, I honestly had a permanent black ring around my eye. If the horse moved, you got this go bashed into your eye, and was fogging you up. And you're pulling it out, and um, so the flexible endoscope. And when you and Macpherson got those first on the grants, it was just absolutely amazing. Like he got, you know, good quality Olympus ones. And in fact, I remember um, he only had one about a month, and um. You know, scoping was considered major. You know, the horse would be in the stocking, you'd have the grooms around, and there was a big kind of half a cloud still. And Joe was scoping it for for Mac, and he put the scope up the horse's nose, and the horse. Joe Fraser. Yeah. Smoking yeah. Joe, and the horse jumped over, and he put his hoof right through the endoscope, and it was hanging on by the wires, and um, uninsured. I remember all afternoon, Joe was going back and trying it. <laughs> Thing would it work? It's pretty obvious. The rest of us <laughs> just hoping it would spring into life. Spring into life, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of another time we had no arthroscopes. I mean, I never did very much on lameness. I wasn't very good at it. Although Joe once he told me I wasn't hopeless. He said I got about one and four legs right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, you know, and Joe had a bad back, and at times he would get me to do some of the surgery. He he would just direct me, but. You know, at that stage, if they had a, an infected joint or something like that, you had to do an arthrotomy and, you know, open it up. And sometimes the wounds would break down afterwards. And, you know, the surgery was worse than the disease. And so the advent of arthroscopes for these people were a major thing. But the the uh, endoscopes, and later on the video endoscopes, and then the small ones, I mean, it revolutionized. I mean, you're just thinking about it. And I think in the last um, oral endoscopes are helping as well. The CTs really on head stuff, and particularly in, with sinuses and teeth. I mean, Tishiana has done a couple of projects, and they're like 97% accurate, you know, on amical infections. And, you know, CT, sorry, um, radiology is only 55%. So they've been, you know, wonderful, wonderful assets to it, yeah. To it, yeah. So the, the endoscope really has, has been amazing yeah. yeah i suppose you've used the endoscope in pretty much every every part of your career really in some, some but, yeah some but otherwise <clears throat> yeah otherwise i mean what can you do with a respiratory you know what can you do by you know auscultating or smelling yeah. the breath or which was done at one stage or putting a bit of cotton up against the nose and see if it's obstruction you know without that 
without an endoscope, you know, there's very little you can do, yeah. So the last question, what would you say in your career you've been most proud of? I've probably been most proud of the of the students that work with me, you know, like um, some of them are, you know, they're absolutely, actually Bruce McGoran was my boss, you know, so. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> you've got to say that. <laughs> you. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, you look at them, you know, these Scott Perry's, et cetera, them, and, you know, there's been great surgeons, you know, David Railton down as the surgeon down there, you know, Safia, you know, Henry, you know, Claire Hawkes, I mean, a lot of them, you know, yourself, John O'Leary, and on the dentistry front, you know, Ian Dacre did great work, and later on, uh, Kirsty and Davy, and then even on the the people who went to the wrong side, <laughs> you know, the medicine people, you know, Kirsty Pickles, that's and yeah, so yeah. I'm really proud of what they've done, you know, they've been, you've been exceptional, you know, they've been a credit to, to Edinburgh, you know, yeah. Yeah, and to you, buddy. I mean, it's it's uh, the Dixon uh, the Dixon family is far and wide across the globe at the moment from 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 your tutelage. So it's incredible. Well, Paddy, thank you very very much for your time this evening. It was fascinating listening to the stories um, earlier on in your career, and I'm sure everybody will be very interested and enjoy listening to that so thank you very much and thank you very much for a yeah. incredible career uh personally and uh thinking on behalf of many many equine vets who uh reach for your textbooks reach for your papers on uh, an almost weekly weekly basis so thank you paddy yeah thank you i don't suppose that interview will be ideal for uh young child from thinking about being a vet i'm sure the mothers will keep that interview away from them. it's a different <laughs> world now paddy yeah it's a different world okay good him yeah okay thank you thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed that first podcast please join us again next month when we'll be interviewing our next beaver legend and if you have any suggestions for future legends to be interviewed then please contact beaver at the email address membership at beaver.org.uk this episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.